0: Uh, My name's Alice, and um, it's lovely to be here this morning. For those of you who I haven't met before, I haven't seen before, um, my husband and I, Matt and I, are the associate pastors for the church, so we help James and Jen um, lead this church, which is exciting. I love it when I come here. This is my second time here. And do you know what's wonderful? As I come here and I see people that I don't know serving on teams, which is amazing. It's a real sign, you know, when we kind of felt the Lord tell us that, Our future was as a multi-site church, that that was going to be how we could um, join him in in, in helping, being a part of seeing this city restored. Um, You know, when we kind of felt that we couldn't really imagine, you know, you have an idea and it's hard to imagine what that's going to be like in reality. And then when I come here, I'm just so blessed to see what that even begins to look like and to see so many people here, faces I don't know and to see people signing up being part of making this happen, so thank you. Um, My husband and I, as well as being the associate pastors, we are also um, currently the site pastors of our Cardiff Central site and we particularly kind of look after our morning service. So my husband is there this morning with our kids running around like crazy and I get to be here. (laughs) In fact, you know, he's actually got my normal glasses as well, so I'm feeling a bit, these are really old prescription glasses, so if I look a bit like I'm squinting, (laughs) that's why he's got... I text him, like, you've got my glasses in the bag. But anyway, there we go. Here I am. Um, And yeah, so that means we're kind of in the central a lot. But, you know, as our role kind of changes and as the church grows over the years, I hope we'll be at this site, you know, um, a bit more often than we're able to be at the moment. Um, But I am carrying on our series in Nehemiah. And if you haven't, if you don't know the book of Nehemiah, if you're not familiar with it, um, that's okay. (laughs) But I do hope that one of the things that you get from this series is just that you get into the story it is a fantastic story if you don't know the story it is a really really golden story it's a golden book of the bible obviously they're all good in their own way but you know it is a good one i love the story i love the suspense so if you're the th- if this is the first time you're hearing the story that's brilliant. It's like, you know when someone says they've never read Harry Potter or something, and you're like, that's amazing, you get to do it all for the first time. And I feel like that with Nehemiah. If this is your first time hearing about it, you get to, you get to be part of what is a great story. So um, just to recap, I um, read Ian's notes from last week. He did a substantial overview for you all. I was like, Ian, you rocked it. Um, and he did a really good overview of the context of the book, which is super helpful in understanding the story. But So I'm not going to do all of that. Again, maybe listen back if you missed it last week. But I will just do a really brief recap of some of the context in that, in that way. Hopefully it's helpful for the talk today. So we are at the point in Israel's history, it's at the low point of the, uh, of the people of Israel um, in the Old Testament. It's the low point of their history, of their story as a people you'll find the book of Nehemiah. It's not at the end of the Old Testament, but it is covering the the period of history that the Old Testament covers. It's right at the end of the period of history that the Old Testament covers. And so at this point, the nation of Israel has been defeated by the Babylonian empire. This mighty empire has rolled in and wiped them out. Um, The temple has been destroyed where they used to worship God in Jerusalem. That has been decimated. Um, The city of Jerusalem gone it's like you know been um all broken down and there's a few people still living there especially some of the rural people but by and large the most of the people have been taken off into captivity and they are currently all living in their own little places all around the babylonian empire they're scattered so here they are they have no king they have no land nowhere to worship and they have no identity as a people anymore they've got no identity as a people anymore and then the Babylonians themselves are overthrown, so they get overthrown by the Persians, and the Persian Empire kind of rolls into town. And the Persian Empire was huge; it was vast. It was like most of the like the, the kind of ancient Near East, so like a lot, a massive part of the Middle East today, um, was the Persian Empire. And this Persian king Cyrus allows the Jews for the first time to return all the way back, um, all the way back to um, Jerusalem to start to rebuild the temple. And the book of Ezra in the Old Testament looks at that story. And Ezra and Nehemiah are like a little twin, <laughs> like me, who was a twin. My twin's here, in fact, just to cause confusion as well. Hello. Um, and, um, yeah, they, they come together as a little set, those two books. So Ezra looks at rebuilding the temple. And then we, kind of, then we have the book of Nehemiah. And last week we looked at the moment where um, Nehemiah kind of enters the scene, enters, or comes onto the scene. And the first thing we see with Nehemiah is he meets with his brother and a few of his brother's friends. And they tell him all that's been going on back in Jerusalem, miles away. And they tell him all that's been going on as they have been returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And um, they talk about how there was loads of tension between those that were ret- returning to rebuild and those that were the remnant, the ones that had been left behind in the first place. And how it's about 100 years or so years later, how they've gone back and they're rebuilding it. And there's a lot of tension between the Remainers, oh, no, this is going to sound a bit Brexit-esque then, and the Leavers, oh no, <gasps> Taxi for one, I'll go. Not allowed to mention that. So, But there was a bit of tension here between the remnant, the people that stayed, and the people that have come back. And so Nehemiah hears about that. And then he also hears about how, whilst the temple's being rebuilt, the city walls themselves are still destroyed. And um, they've not been rebuilt successfully. And the walls would have represented you know, security for the city and also a big part of their identity. And whilst they were still kind of, um, you know, all over the place, whilst they were all broken down and destroyed, um, Jerusalem would have obviously been vulnerable to attack, but also its identity would have been kind of still in tatters. It still would have been a bit of a laughingstock amongst its neighbouring um, communities and cultures around it. It was still a sign almost that the city was still in disgrace. It was a sign of what had happened in their past. And Nehemiah, um, Ian looked at last week how he is broken by this. He's broken by this report from his brothers and his brother's friends. And um, he, in that moment, he weeps, he mourns, he prays, he fasts, he comes before God. And in that time, he has a vision. What would it look like to see this city restored, rebuilt, to have these walls rebuilt? And um he, he he spends time, the first thing he does is he spends time before the Lord and says, Lord, give me your heart for this. Give me your vision to see this happen. And then kind of secondly, Lord, help me to help this happen. Help me. Open the door. Give me your blessing so that this can happen. Now, Nehemiah would have known that for, for this to even begin to happen, someone is gonna have to go and ask the king, the current king of Persia is called Artaxerxes, which is a mouthful, You're gonna have to go to him and say, Look can you let us back and s- go back and start to do the walls because it was under persian rule so you had to get the king's permission right so they knew they were going to have someone was have to go t- going to have to go in and ask the king for this now Nehemiah was uniquely placed in that he actually was the cupbearer to the king which meant he had the kind of I don't know whether it was a good job or a bad job. He had to try all the king's food and drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And um, so he's kind of in a unique position. It was like a privileged position in the court. Um, So he was obviously high up. He's obviously a well-respected person, this Nehemiah. We don't know how he's ended up with this job, but there he is. And so Nehemiah knows that for for this vision to happen, he's going to have to go and ask the king. And if he wants to be the person to see the vision realized, if he's going to be involved in leading this mission to go back, and rebuild the walls the king is going to have to let him go release him from his position as a cupbearer and that's it suspense and so the moment we have here is in chapter 2 i'm just going to read down to verse 9 the moment where nehemiah comes before the king and takes a big step of asking for the king to let him go back to jerusalem so it's going to come up here if you've got your bible you'll find it nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 down to 9 here we go in the month of nisan just like the car. Every time I've read that, I thought, oh, like the car. <laughs> in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid but I said to the king may the king live forever why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire the king said to me what is it you want then I prayed to the god of heaven and I answered the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me tem- timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence which I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. It's good, isn't it? Yes, this is exciting. It's getting exciting. I don't know about you, but when I read those verses, the word that stands out to me, the thing that comes to my mind is the word risk. What a risk. Nehemiah, what a risk that was. He risks everything at this point to see the city that he loves restored. He risks everything. He's willing to risk his position, his status, potentially his life. You know, if you think about it, the role of a cupbearer was a kind of a delicate relationship. You know, the king would have had to innately trust Nehemiah. He had to trust him with his life, didn't he? And if he, at any point, suspected Nehemiah was being disloyal, had any reason to distrust Nehemiah, that would be the end of the job. Probably the end of his life. You know, these kings weren't always the most rational of people. Um, it would have been a scary moment to go and ask. Um, yeah, to go and ask for this permission. Nehemiah was risking everything for the vision that God has given him. And today, I want to look at risk. I'd love us just to look together this morning at this idea of risk. And what, would it, what does it look like to be a people of kingdom risk? You know, we've just done this kind of big series, haven't we, up till now on, the, on being kingdom carriers. You know, that's part of our vision for us as a church is that we would be people who are kingdom carriers into this city, who see the kingdom of God um, realised in this city. And how are we going to be people of kingdom risk in order to do that? Of people that don't just play it safe. Now, John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement, one of his most famous sayings was this, faith is spelt R-I-S-K. Faith is spelt R-I-S-K. To step out in faith in any way is to risk, isn't it? You know, to be a kingdom carrier is to risk. It's a real risk, isn't it, to offer to pray for somebody or to share your faith with somebody, to admit when you've done something wrong and say sorry, to, um, to be part of a small group, you know, to commit to being part of a community of people and actually open up about your life and be real with people. That's a risk, isn't it? It's a risk to pursue a vision or a calling that God has given you. To say, this is what I think God's calling me to. You know, in that moment you're vulnerable. It's a risk. How can we increase our capacity for risk as a people? Now, the current trend in our society seems to be that as a kind of generally speaking as a culture, we are becoming more and more risk Averse. Now, that's true of both the millennial generation. You know, fewer and fewer people in their 20s are doing startup companies, that kind of thing. But also of the older generation. You know, as we live longer, people are less and less willing to take financial risks um, or risk with their property, that kind of thing. And then it's probably not a surprise to think on the other side of it, that as, uh, as a society, as a culture, as we become more and more um, risk-averse, less and less likely to take risks, um, we're also seeing that we are becoming more and more fearful that we are becoming more and more fearful. We are apparently becoming a nation of worriers. A recent poll suggested that almost 50% of 18 to 30-year-olds are worried for their future. 50%. Now, you might not be surprised to hear that. You know, Our current political situation, the stuff around climate change, international security, you know, there's lots of things to worry about. If you are a worrier, if you're a worrier like me, there's lots of things you could worry about right now. We are, f- we are getting more and more scared as a society. And, of course, risk and fear are directly linked, aren't, there? aren't they? You know, that's no, probably no great surprise. Fear can be the biggest limiting factor of our ability to risk. Fear is the biggest limiting factor of our ability to take risk, of our willing to take risk. Fear, fear can determine whether or not we're willing to take any risk. Now, I suppose I want to just start by saying um, that, there, that some level of fear is healthy, isn't it? It's all right to have some level of fear in life. Fear is like a part of how we're designed. You know, it's supposed to be those moments when we, re- we sense danger and that can lead us to action to stop danger. You know, it's kind of normal, natural to have some level of fear in our lives. That's a sign that you're normal. <laughs> um, you know, a while ago, uh, last summer, my husband and I took our kids up to um, up into Brecon, up to the waterfalls in Brecon, which are beautiful. We went for this kind of big family walk. Those of you with kids here will know the moment, you know, you're kind of about 10 steps away. You can still see the car behind you and the kids are like, are we there yet? And you're like, "Mm, no, not quite. Kind of, you know, kind of coax them all the way. It got up to this waterfall. And before you could even kind of see the waterfall, you could hear it. You know, that kind of loudness of that water, kind of the falling of the water, 80 foot drop this water just falling down, cascading down. And the kids are kind of excited to finally be at the thing that we've been hyping up for the last 40 minutes. So off they kind of scamper. And I kind of can look ahead and see that there is a surprising lack of health and safety over, uh, just to warn all future people that go up there, there is a surprising <laughs> overlooking of health and safety at the waterfalls. There's no barrier, there's nothing to stop. And the kids are scrambling along. And the fear I felt in the moment as I watched, you know, the two, two of the most precious things in my life, scampering towards this 80-foot drop, Th- the thundering noise of this water and did what any mum would do I heard and made my husband stand there with them because I couldn't bear to see them getting too near this precipice I couldn't even, the fear was so great in me I was like oh Matt you have to deal with that um, and he did with me going Matt don't let them get too near don't let them get too near <laughs> like any rational person would obviously but it's normal to have some level of fear you should feel scared if you watch your kids run towards an 80 foot drop shouldn't you, you should feel scared so that's perfectly normal um but when our fear comes from a place of brokenness, when it's not just a normal thing to feel, when it comes from a place of brokenness within us, all of us are broken. When it comes from that place of brokenness, it can stop us living the lives of, God, living the lives of faith that God has intended for us, that God has designed us for. You know, and there's a real danger as Christians that we let fear control us. And in doing so, that we never live the lives of kingdom risk that God has designed for us to do, that we end up letting fear control us you know those moments Have you've ever seen like kind of horse racing you know when a, a horse comes towards a jump and just stops you know where fear kicks in it's like I'm not doing this and <laughs> stops we've all had those moments I'm sure where you could have shared your faith with someone and you're like oh no it was too awkward I didn't or like the other day I was talking to a mum and she was talking about um, illness in her family And I kind of was about to say, can I pray for you? And I just said, oh, I'll pray for you this week. I kind of bottled, do you know what I mean? I did like a semi kind of one, you know. I said the word prayer, but I didn't pray for her then, you know. Because fear in that moment was like, oh, no, she'll think I'm odd. Um, You know, or where we see kind of a moment of injustice or maybe it's, you know, we see something and fear in the moment stops us from acting. And we bottle it. And I suppose I also want to say at this point that what I'm talking about here is... um, is fear in its most general universal sense. You know, I'm aware as I'm talking this morning that there'll be people in this room or people in your lives that struggle (laughs) with fear to the point where it is a debilitating thing. You know, if that is you this morning, you know, if you're living in kind of constant anxiety and pain, then the message I would want you to hear of everything this morning is that your Father in heaven loves you. He loves you, you know, and he understands that sometimes the brokenness, the stuff that's happened to us in our lives can go so deep that we live with levels of anxiety that are like, you know, off the charts bad. He understands that. But you know, he also has better for you in your future. And I suppose the invitation I'd give you this morning, if that's you here, is take the step, um, the risk this morning to talk to someone about it. Maybe you just don't talk about it. Maybe you just got used to living with a certain level of background noise background fear in your life you know the risk for you might after you know everything we talk about this morning maybe the one thing you do this morning is like I'm going to start to deal with that I'm going to engage with some of the pastoral care we do at the church you know you can see all of that on our website maybe it's chatting to a counsellor going and engaging with that or your GP or a f- talking to a friend or just this morning getting prayer maybe that's the risk this morning is you finally say yeah I'm going to get prayer for this But what I'm talking about this morning, just coming back to it, I'm not talking about kind of fear in that specific sense, but more just the general level of fear that can stop all of us from engaging in kingdom risk, you know, that can stop us from seeing the visions and dreams that God has given us realised, that kind of fear. So the question I'd ask is, what is it you're scared of? As you look inside yourself, what is it that you're scared of? Do you have a real fear of failure in your life? Do you have a real fear of what people think? You know, like me, I said, you know, I didn't share in that moment. I just didn't, I was scared of what the my friend would think of me. Maybe you have a fear of rejection or a fear of being left out or a fear of being vulnerable. Like, you don't want people to see who you really are. You've put on a front for so long and you're not willing to be vulnerable. Maybe you've got a fear of hardship in your life. I felt actually when we were worshipping, there's someone here, you have a real fear about t- taking financial risk in your life, you know, and the comfort that having finances provides What is it you fear? And how is that stopping you taking a kingdom risk? What is the impact of that fear in you taking any risks for the kingdom? John Ortberg says this. If you've ever heard of John Ortberg, he's a Christian writer and leader over in America. And he says this. Millions of people in churches want some of the comfort associated with spirituality but they don't want the risk and challenge that go along with actually following Jesus. That's so true, isn't it? Sometimes we want the comfort associated with our faith, but we don't always want the risk and challenge that go along with actually following Jesus. You know and I think Jesus has called on us as a church and as a church across the world, is to kind of wake us up, dust us off, um, and to get us living the lives of kingdom risk He actually called us to in the first place. Now, I think a kind of a huge um, kind of step forward we can take in this whole area, a huge thing we can realise that can kind of get us off the starting blocks, as it were, um, is when we realise that the fear you feel when you take a risk will never go away. That fear that you feel when you go to take a risk will never go away. You know, there'll always be some fear when we risk, because that's part of it, isn't it? You know, think of a time you ever risked anything, you know, whether it be talking in terms of kingdom stuff or just in life. Every risk we take has some level of fear. You know, stepping outside our comfort zone involves some level of pain, some level of fear, some level of losing the comfort that's holding us back. There'll always be some fear. But faith looks like doing it anyway. That's what faith is it's doing it anyway. Now, that doesn't mean we don't process our fears with Jesus. We don't look for breakthrough. We don't look for less fear in our lives. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, we have to realize that to step out in faith, we will always have some level of fear. And faith looks like doing it anyway, or what I've kind of termed in this talk, doing it scared. Faith looks like doing it scared. And do you know, if you have moments in your life at the moment when you're not scared, <laughs> um, that, you know, what, uh, what, uh, what God is asking you to do, if you don't have those moments, then you're probably um, not stepping out in faith enough currently in your life. That's probably the reality. If God is, you know, if you don't have those moments, you're like, God, really? You're asking me to do this? If you don't have those moments of fear, you're probably not stepping out in faith enough in your life. And that's okay. We can pray. There's a chance for <laughs> a new week. There's always a chance for a new start. But a big, th- a big jump forward is le- we have to learn the art of doing it scared. Learning the art of doing it scared. And that's what I love about this story in Nehemiah. Coming, I know I've kind of talked about the passage and not talked about it now for ages, but coming back into that passage in verse two, I find super comforting. You know, the moment when Nehemiah is before the king, he's, you know, kind of in step with the spirit, he knows the presence of God is with him, and he senses the opportunity opening up as the king asks him a question. And this is what he says in verse two. He tells us, the reader, he says, I was very much afraid. (laughs) I love that. Thank you, Nehemiah. So honest. I was very much afraid. He's terrified.